Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing okay? You look great. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. Grab them. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 as we walk through, continue to walk through this study uh, of the book of Colossians. Um, we are in the, in the second part called Before All Things in Our Hearts. What does it look like for Jesus to be before all things in our hearts? And so uh, the way I teach and preach and, and really all of the pastors here, the way we preach is we just go through the scriptures line by line, sometimes just word by word, and that type of preaching is called expository. And basically it just means this. It means that my job is, is to expose you to the word of God. So read a verse. This is what I think it means. Read a verse. This is what I think it means. Oh, that reminds me of a story to illustrate what we've just read about. That's what I do. And that's why it takes us seven weeks to get through two chapters of the book of Colossians. That's fine. <clears throat> Now, so my job is to expose you to the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit's job to expose the Word of God to you. I can't do that. If you've ever learned anything here, you've learned it from the true preacher here at 1122 who is the Holy Spirit. Only he can teach you. Only he can open you up to what God has to say to you. And so this is what we do. We continuously just go through God's word and trust that the word of God does what it promises it's going to do. It, it will never return void or in vain. And that the Holy Spirit, with the authority of the word of God, will do in your heart what only he can do. Now, last week, um, I kind of picked on every denomination. I really did. If, if you weren't offended, then uh, come see me and I'll offend you personally. But uh, one, of the, one of the denominations we picked on the most were Catholics. And so uh, in order to make our Catholics really feel at home uh, today, would everybody please stand for the reading of God's word? <laughs> so you just stood, now you're sitting, now you're standing up again, right? But I'll do it in English, so we'll do it 1122 style, okay? <laughs> and I'll just read. You can trust mine, okay? Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." May God add blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his word. You may be seated. Now, what I'm going to do is just uh, unpack these 10 verses. Because what we've been talking about in regards to Jesus being before all things in my heart, uh, oftentimes people think that the gospel is like the doorway into Christianity. That the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection is like that thing that, that gets you to become a Christian, but then we move away from those things. We think that sometimes like, uh, like the gospel is, is sort of the starter of the engine of what it means to walk with Christ, but the reality is the gospel is the fuel on which that engine runs. And so the first couple of weeks, we, we talked about the reality of the gospel in our heart. 
that the, the, the debt record has been nailed to the cross. Therefore, Jesus disarmed the ruler and authorities of this world at the cross. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then last week, that, that it, this, thing, this whole Christian thing is not about religion. It is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not rooted in my activity to please the Lord. It is rooted in Christ's activity on the cross that changes everything about me that gives me that relationship with Jesus. And then where, where Paul is going to go here in, in chapter 3 is he's going to talk about, and it's the gospel that not only saves you but sanctifies you, that the gospel matures you. Now, I've got a confession to make. I told you this before. For about 15 years, I did student ministry, all right? I loved it. It was great. It's the best gig at church for sure, without a doubt. It really is. Um, but uh, I, I've considered myself a voracious learner my whole life. I love to read. I feel like there's not a conversation I can't have that I can't learn from whoever I'm talking to. The problem is for 15 years when I was doing student ministry, I was reading a certain type of book. Not necessarily cutting-edge leadership kind of material, okay? And then the kind of books you read when you're running student ministry, there'll be like a whole chapter in a book on what to do if a seventh grader toots during large group. And you're like, oh, yeah, that happens a lot. What should we do? Okay, that's kind of what you're into. Then I became the lead pastor of the church of 1122, and I thought, I've got some catching up to do. So I go to my mentor, uh, <clears throat> the chairman of the elder board, Lars Peterson, says, have you read Seven Habits of Highly Effective people and I'm like well, I haven't I've been reading those other books and so he's like you got to so I'm like 20 years late 15 years late on what every other business leader in the world has been reading and so here's why I say all of that when I look at this these 10 verses I see seven habits of highly effective Christians I try to get away from it I don't like seven steps or seven anythings all right but I can't get away from it now the way I want you to think about it is this I'm not a steps guy because every time I went to church and somebody gave me four steps to peace or three steps to joy, I'd run the steps and I wouldn't get what they promised. And I thought, well, I guess I'm broken. So instead of thinking like seven steps, here's what I want us to think about. I think there are seven ingredients that we see here in the recipe that is mature Christianity. Not, not necessarily in order. The first one is for sure. But these are ingredients Gospel ingredients and what it looks like for the gospel to mature you. So here we go. That's how we're going to unpack this. Number one is this. The first ingredient is the gospel. Look where he starts. This is where Paul starts with an if-then statement. <clears throat> if then, this is verse one, you have been raised with Christ. That's a big if if you have been raised with Christ, verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, if you aren't born again, if you've not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if you don't have a relationship with him, then we might as well not talk about the rest of the sentences here. That, that our life in Christ starts with us understanding it's not by our activity that we appease an angry God. It is by Christ's activity on the cross that we get to have a relationship with the almighty creator of the universe as our heavenly father. This is about identity before activity. And again, I talk about it all the time. I was raised with the exact opposite. I was raised with the, God is good, you are bad, try harder, see you next week. And I was an utter failure over and over and over. It was not until 
at the heart level, I understood what it was to be raised with Christ, to die to myself and say, Jesus, you did for me what I could not do for me. That this thing is about a relationship, not an external religion. Friend of mine and probably one of the greatest preachers alive right now, Matt Chandler, he says it this way. To be conformed to a pattern of religion is not the same as being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Those are two different things. So we are not talking here about being conformed to a pattern of religion that we call 1122. We are talking about being transformed by an inward working of the Holy Spirit. That that you don't see the church and you don't see Christianity as just useful and practical. You just see it as beautiful. It's about a relationship first and foremost. And that is the first ingredient. That is where he starts. If this is chicken noodle soup, that's the chicken. It's the most important thing. The second one is this. This is where I get to Covey's book. In in Stephen Covey's book, his number one thing in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is to begin with the end in mind. This This is what Paul, he never uses that language, but this is what he's talking about here too, to begin with the end in mind. When I read Covey's book about begin with the end in mind, and you get to the part of the book that says, at this point, put down the book and do this activity. By the way, I never do that when I read a book. Have you ever done that? Anytime the book says, lay this down and go do this thing, I go, no, because why? Because the point of a book is not to learn, it's to finish the book. That's what you're trying to do. So that when people say, have you read? You go, I totally read that, okay? That's why. But in this one case, I put the book away and did his activity. And his activity was this. He said, imagine that you are at your own funeral. Imagine you're at your own funeral. And you've invited three or four people from different areas of your life to come up there and talk about you at your funeral. What do you want them to say? By the way, since the death rate right now in America hovers right around 100%, you might want to think this through. Okay? You could also help your family out a little bit if you go ahead and pre-decide who those people are. And then Covey, what Covey says is whatever you want them to say about you is your definition of success. So why not aim your life at that thing? Because that is what success is. The decisions you make today are the stories told about you at your funeral tomorrow. And so I did, man. I sat down, and, and, and I was kind of working through that deal and thought about, you know, what do I want my funeral to be like? And I'm going to be honest, man, uh, if you come to my funeral, and I hope you do, I hope it's packed out. I, w- I hope we have a multi-site experience funeral. I really do. And, and not because I'm popular. I, could give, I don't care about that. Uh, I, the reason is because I hope I spend my life making disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. I hope there are people at my funeral that don't even know who I am, but the person that discipled them was discipled by me, and they would bring them along and say, the reason you know Jesus is because that brother taught me about Jesus. So that's what I hope. And I hope you cry your face off. I really do. I mean, you just cry and you snot and you wear out the Kleenex, okay? Because I ain't going to be crying. I'm going to be rocking out uh, in the heavenly, so you don't have to worry about me, but you can cry your face off. And, And here's what I hope is said about me. It's the same thing that was said about the man that led me to Christ. It's Acts 11.24. I hope somebody with integrity can say about me, and he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 
And so if my funeral's anytime soon, uh, could you just do me a favor too? I don't know who will do it, uh, but, but whoever does my funeral could, when you get to that end part and a great number of people were brought to the Lord, a great number would be one more. Could you ask just one more person to come to Christ? Because I've lived my life for that. You might as well do it at my death too. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's what I kind of hope happens. And so I tattooed it on my arm. I think about it all the time. I hope when they put me in the ground, somebody can say that about me because I want to begin with the end in mind. Now, however... That is not how first century discipleship worked. Not at all. You see, in first century discipleship, when they began with the end in mind, they did not have themselves in mind. You see, when a, when a disciple followed after a rabbi, what they hoped somebody said about them at their funeral was nothing about them. The point of being a follower or a, or a disciple or a Talmudin, that's the, that's the Hebrew word, was that that disciple could be just like their rabbi. So when Paul talks about it, he talks about it this way in verse 3. For if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you can't tell where Jesus ends and where you begin. You see, when, when the disciples originally followed after Jesus, the reason they followed after Jesus is because they believed that they could be just like Jesus. They could do everything that he did. They could be exactly like him. I've heard some horrible sermons about what must have the disciples thought when they dropped their nets and followed after Jesus. Do you know it was, it was the highest calling in the first century to be invited to follow after a rabbi? It would, be like, it would be like an NFL football coach coming to my son's 12U football game yesterday and say, hey, you want to come play for the Jaguars? What would dad say? Go for it, buddy. And if the next week somebody says, hey, where's your son? How come he's not here in flag anymore? Because he just signed a contract with the league, okay? This is what the dad of the fishermen that dropped their nets and left their dad and went and followed after Jesus, he could not wait for the next day when somebody said, where are the boys? And he goes, <laughs> They're following after a rabbi. Why? Because this, this was the high holy calling of every young man in this century. And the promise is this. The promise was not that this rabbi would make me a better version of me. The promise was that I would be covered. This is, this is phrases they would use. That I would be covered in the dust of my rabbi. That I would, I would walk so closely behind them that I would be covered up by his dust that people could not tell where he Cease to exist and where I began to exist. And so Paul says here, in our faith walk, we've got to begin with the end in mind. And the end is not you being a better version of you. The end is you being hidden in Christ. It's like the prodigal son when the prodigal comes home and the dad goes running to him. And what does the dad first and foremost do? He gets on the ground with him, he hugs him, and he begins to kiss him. He begins to, he begins to unite himself with his boy. And if you're looking from the outside, you can't tell where the dirty son is and where the clean father is because they have just kind of become one. It's also, it's also why Jesus would say things like this. He says, one day you're going to do the things that I have done and even greater things than I. Why? Because the point of following after Jesus is not that we become a better version of us, but that we become just like him. That we're not perfect now, but we are being perfected, and one day we will be united with him. It's why when Peter's in the boat... 
And Jesus comes walking to him in the middle of the night, and they think, it's a ghost. And then Peter's like, no, 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 that might be Jesus, our rabbi. And so he says to Jesus, if it's really you, Jesus, out there walking on the water, then call me to walk out there with you. Why? Because in following you, I should be able to do whatever you do. And so Jesus says, come on, big boy, let's take a step. That's a very loose translation, but that's basically what he says. And then Peter gets out and follows step by step. His rabbi. So the second thing is to begin with the end in mind. Not what, not, not what my life is going to be at the end of this, but how I will be united in Christ. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the second ingredient. The third one is this. The third ingredient to mature Christianity is vivification. Vivification. It's just a Latin word that means life. The way I would define vivification is this. Vivification is those activities or environments that stir your affections for Jesus. Those activities or environments that stir your affections for Jesus. Notice, this is, the, this is where Paul starts. He says, okay, if you're a Christian... If you're a Christian who will be united in Christ, those are the first two ingredients, then what do you do? Then you, verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. See, I was taught the exact opposite, and the order matters. I was taught, if you're going to be a good Christian, then this is the stuff that you got to quit doing. Bunch of heathens? We'd be like, okay. And if we were sort of taught, stop doing all of this sin so that you can set your mind on Christ. And then Paul would go, that's the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. You set your mind on Christ. You set your mind on the things that are above so that in his strength and in his power, you will have to, the ability to put to death the things that are trying to kill you. You see, I'm, it's a relationship, right? It's a relationship. This is why... This is why I take my wife on dates. I don't take my wife on dates because I have to or because I read it in a book. I take my wife on dates because I want to put ourselves in the kind of environments that stir our affections for one another. And it's one of my favorite things to do. One of my favorite things to do in our marriage is for the babysitter to show up, my kids to get a little antsy, and to, for them to ask me, Dad, where are you and Mom going? And for me to say, to your favorite restaurant, can we go? No, you cannot go. In fact, we're not even going to be home uh, before you go to sleep. We're not going to read the Bible to you. We're not going to pray with you. You're going to stay here, all right? Bye. And we are going to go to this other place and put ourselves in the kind of environment that gets it all stirred up again. And we go somewhere, and I always pick the right seat, man. I try to get in a corner somewhere where there's no TV with any sort of sports, anything going on around me. Because if I can see it in my peripheral vision, I'm like a moth to a flame. I just can't. I just need to see the score, okay? I just, so I know. I put my back to it. And then we're just eyeball to eyeball. And we just talk and we laugh and we tell stories and we make fun of you and we do those kinds of things. <laughs> so that, so that, it just, it just draws us closer together in a real similar way. Um, that, that's what spiritual disciplines are. It, it's putting yourself in the kind of environment that stir your affections for the Lord. You see, 
You're never gonna neglect your relationship with God into a place of just deep, abiding intimacy. It's not how it works. Hey, look, we live in Florida, right? You know what none of you have ever done? You've never neglected your lawn into yard of the month. You never have. You've never walked out of your house and there's the neighborhood sign, congratulations, yard of the month. And your neighbors come over all coveting you. What did you do? You're like, I don't know, nothing. I just, I don't ever cut the grass. I don't pull the weeds. I don't do fur. I don't do anything. It just grows this way. That's never happened. We live in Florida. You can look and be like, is that a piece of brown grass? You turn around for one second, chinch bugs, boom, whole thing. Your marriage is the same way. You've never neglected your marriage into a place of just marital bliss. That's never happened. Your relationship with God is the same way. Now, if you've done any yard work, you know, do you have to pull weeds? Yes, you gotta pull weeds. You have to, they'll take things over. But what's the number one way to keep the weeds out of the yard? Fertilize that healthy grass. This is where Paul starts. Set your mind on things above. So my question to you is this, is what are you doing that stirs your affections for the Lord? You should know that about you. And if you don't know that about you, that's why the church is here to try to help you out with that. If you go to either our app, if you, if you have not downloaded the app yet, you should do that. Um, or you can go to the website, coe22.com. And if you go to the disciple group page, you can go to our discipleship journey. And you can download a PDF that looks like this. And we've got the image on the screen. And all of this, you know what this is? There are diagnostic questions for you to ask. What is your next step in your relationship with Jesus? Because make no mistake about it, you cannot, you cannot stop taking steps and be a follower of Jesus. You can't. Because he's on the move. He is on the go. And if you quit taking steps, it means you're not following after him anymore. And there are just diagnostic questions, and all of these basically ask this. What is the next step you need to take, the next environment that you need to walk into that would help you stir your affections for Jesus? And the reason we don't tell you exactly what your next step is is because everybody's not the same. And, and everybody's not in the same place in their walk. No problem, man. We're a movement for all people. But everybody needs to take a next step. And basically, if you boil all the spiritual disciplines down to three categories, they all come down to this. There's some Bible time, there's some God time, and there's some people time. That's what they are. There's some Bible time. There needs to be some time in your life where you're reading and hearing the Word of God. Congratulations, you're a part of that right now, okay? Um, there also should be some God time, some praying and worshiping. There should be some people time, whether you're serving people or sharing your faith with people or getting to know people and being known. And the key is, is to figure out what stirs your affections for Jesus in this, in this season of your walk with him now and take that next step. What does that look like for you? You see, for me, man, I, I, lo- I mean, I'm a Bible nerd. I do this professionally. But one of the things that stirs my heart for Jesus is, is studying God's word, not just like devotionally reading. Let me read until a verse makes me feel fuzzy. Not, not so much that, but to like dig in to the, to the guts of the scripture. Anytime I learn something new, anytime I feel like God just sort of opens up like a, I've never seen that before. Because I can tell you, I've read the whole thing. And still, every single week when I'm sitting in a tree stand working through the scriptures to do what I'm doing right now, and, and I learn something new, I see something that I have not seen before, I can't explain it, I just feel like I, I'm, I feel like I get into the shower and I'm turning on the faucet of grace that just falls over me. Because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the real teacher and that he would teach us what's in the scripture. And every time I learn something new, I think, you did it again. 
You did it again. You don't owe me a sermon, and you've given me one every single week. I've sought after one. That does it for me. Another thing is when I go into the woods, I, I just hear Jesus better in the woods. You're going to think this is the silliest thing in the world, but when I am sitting in a tree stand doing my deal, and I see a red cardinal, they look more red in the woods than they do anywhere else. Everything's just brown and green, and then this bright red pops up, and I'm telling you, it just makes me think of Jesus. Every single time, I just, I just thank him for his blood shed for me when I see a red bird in the woods. It's crazy, right? And then sometimes I walk around in the woods, not when other people are with me, and I talk to God. And if you saw this, if this ever gets filmed, I look like a crazy person, I am sure. I talk to him as if he's just walking right there with me. You know why? Because he's walking right there with me. He's actually in me, which is better, so I don't even have to talk that loud. He can already hear it, all right? But I just do. Those things stir my affections for the Lord. Worship music for me. I mean, corporately, when we do this thing together, there are some songs that our band has written, that my wife, that Ben Williams, that Madeline, some of these people have written that just do it for me. Um, the Shane and Shane Psalms album. Remember Shane and Shane came for Saturated? All right, listen, I'd never really listened to them. They're in my office, so I've downloaded one of their albums on my phone. I'm like, yeah, I just got your, uh, your new album. You know, because I was just trying to have a conversation with these guys that were in my office. But this, this Psalms album, Psalm 46, has wrecked and ruined my life. In the best way possible. You know why? Because it just stirs my affections for Jesus. So what about you? What are you doing to stir your affections for Jesus? By the way, do you know how many journals I have in my office? I, I bet I got 40 journals with the first three pages filled out of each one. <laughs> do you know why? Because, bro, journaling just doesn't do it for me. But the problem is all of my heroes are like journalers. And so, man, I've got one day one. It is rich. It always turns into sermon notes since that's not what they're supposed to be. And then day two is less than rich. And then day three, it's like, dear journal, this sucks. I'm not doing this anymore, right? And it's just terrible. And then I have to apologize. Just Gretchen says I shouldn't say sucks. You know, it's, that's where it goes. And so for a while, I was like, hey, you know what? I got the wrong journal. So I've got leather-bound ones. I've got, I've got ones with Bible verses already in them. I've got, I've got ones that famous Christians have signed and given me. I thought that would help. None of that stuff helps, okay? That doesn't do it for me. The question is, is, is what do you need to do? What steps do you need to take that stir your affections for Jesus? You see, because the point of those things are not those things. The point of disciple group is not disciple group. The point of serving is not serving. The point is to discover and deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. The point is not the step you take, but the one that you're following after. And what you're following after is not just cold, dead, religious pragmatism. The point is to have this living, vivacious relationship with Jesus. John Owens, this old dead Puritan, he said it this way. He says, oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live, herein would I die, herein would I dwell in my thoughts and affections until all things below become unto me a dead and deformed thing, no way suitable for affectionate embraces. 
In other words, he says, when I set my affections on Jesus, everything in this world that used to be really important to me, they become less and less important. Brother Lawrence, he was a 16th century monk. He wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence. This is what he says about. What kind of things do you do in your life that you experience the presence of God? In that book, he says this. It's my favorite quote, and by favorite, I mean it disturbs me a little bit. Here's what he says. I have at times had such delicious thoughts on the Lord, I am ashamed to mention them. I don't know what that means, okay? I don't know. Seems kind of weird. I'm of the opinion that the word delicious should only be used in regards to food. Okay, that's just me. But what I'm saying here is this brother does not just have a cold, dead pragmatism. He has a relationship with God. Again, my man, Matt Chandler says it this way. If intimacy with God for you hinges on your ability to manage your behavior, you will never walk intimately with God. So what are the things that you need to do to stir your affections for the Lord? That's what vivification is, the third ingredient. The fourth ingredient is this. It's mortification. Mortification is just a Latin, Latin word that means murder or to kill. And so what Paul does after he says Turn your eyes to the things above, not to the things below, so that you can mortify. Verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he's going to give a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. By the way, I don't have time to unpack all of these. Every single one of these phrases are sexual in nature. He starts out with porneo. That's when, when the ESV translates, when you see the word sexual immorality, it comes from the Greek word porneo. Sound familiar? It just is the junk drawer for sexual immorality. It covers everything. It's saying anything that is sexual that is outside of God's desire and design, and his desire and design for you is this, for all of us is this, is that sex is for married people. And God defines marriage as one man, one woman, one lifetime. And anything outside of that, he says, put to death. And then all of these other things, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, that means having sex with somebody that's not yours, those things, he would say, put those to death, they are idolatry. Idolatry is you saying that is more important than you, God. That is more important than you. So that's where he goes there. And then verse 8, he gives another list. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. All of these in this list have to do with what comes out of your mouth. So you know what Paul basically says? Paul says, put to death, try to kill the sin that is trying to kill you. And he says, keep your mouth shut, keep your pants on. Those are the two big things, the two big categories. Man, don't tell me the Bible's out of date. It's what he says. You see, and, when he, and the reason he's talking about those things, the reason he talks about the mouth is because we don't have mouth problems. We have a heart problem. Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You, you don't have a potty mouth. You've got a potty heart. And our mouth reveals what's in our heart. Proverbs 18 and 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So you can either speak life or you can speak death. And so what Paul is saying here in mortification of sin is he is saying, that you and I better kill the sin that is trying to kill you. First and foremost, we fix our eyes upon Jesus so that we can kill the sin that is trying to kill us. He gives two big categories. And I think a whole lot of times in, in our kind of modern day church, we don't really take sin that seriously. We think it's not that big a deal. 
And Paul would say, do you not realize that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? You see, if you knew a lion was trying to kill you, it would change the way you do everything, would it not? You would, you would come to church differently. You wouldn't just walk out of your house this morning and stroll to your car. If you knew there was a lion today trying to kill you, you wouldn't, when the service is over, you wouldn't just sling up in the door and be like, see you later, and walk to your car. You would get to the door and be like, you might see a lion out here because there is one trying to kill me, okay? Where is this thing, right? It would change the way you live. And a lot of times we try to treat sin like it's not that big a deal. You know how big a deal our sin is? It killed Jesus. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. I've told you this a million times before. I'm going to tell you a million more times, okay? Um, <clears throat> I was, at, I was uh, at a petting zoo with this girl that I was going out with in college, all right? And I've told you, she was missing a finger. It was this one, okay? And, and the most important part, too, the part with the nail on it, and she would, like, point with it. I was like, use a good one. Why you want? It grossed me out, all right? It just grossed me out. She'd want to put it on me. I was like, stop it. So I knew from the beginning it wasn't going to work out, okay? <laughs> now, listen. If you're missing a finger, no problem, man. God loves you, has a plan for your life, but we ain't going out. That's just how that's going down, okay? I'm shallow, okay? My wife has got all her fingers. And so, uh, so we're at this petting zoo. There's a bunch of kindergartners around, little kids and us, and we're feeding these goats. And at one point, I, and you know, you're kind of jacking around with the goats, see if you could pet them, grab the little horns and stuff, and we're feeding them some stuff. And at one point, I go, oh, my goodness, it ate off her finger. She's like, stop, right? And the kids see it, and they lose their mind. Ah, and they were, that's what happened. Have you ever been kicked out of a petting zoo? I have, all right? So, so we didn't go out anymore after that. It, was, it worked out perfectly. <clears throat> I think sometimes... We see sin like a bunch of little goats that we can just kind of jack around with, right? Uh, in St. Augustine, they have a, this kind of zoo for big cats. I don't know if you've ever been there. They've got lions, tigers, you know, that kind of stuff. My brother, my brother works for the St. John's County Sheriff's Department. So, and he, he kind of digs that big cat place. And so if a deer gets hit, then he goes over, he scoops up the deer, and he takes it to the big cat place. See, where I'm from, we take it to the house, you know? My daddy say it's always truck season, so, but <laughs> takes this deer, takes this doe, you know, 100-pound doe, and he, they throw it over the fence to this, there's a lion there, they call him Mufasa. My brother's telling me about this, man. They toss this doe out there and unleash Mufasa, and he comes walking out, like, keeping his eyeballs right on the people. He walks right up to the doe, lays on it, and without taking his eyes off the people, he grabs it by the head and just, <laughs> like a, Peanut M&M. That's not even the good part, by the way. The good part's down, you know, the back strap. And he just, <laughs> now, you know what no one does at the big cat place? Nobody runs in there and is like, shake his tail. <laughs> no. Nobody's like, I'm going to pet him and kind of, oh, he got my finger. Because they don't get fingers. They take a whole arm off if you're lucky. We have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Sometimes we treat sin in our life like it's a goat. It ain't a goat. It is an apex predator that wants to kill you. About three years ago, I took JP to this uh, camp that I was teaching. Every summer, I try to do that. I try to take my kids with me as I'm traveling and speaking. I just want them to see that side of ministry. And so it was just he and I, and we were in, uh, we were in Texas. And, and it's great. I was like, buddy, it's just man rules while we're here, okay? 
No bedtime, you get to figure it out, order whatever you want. If you want to eat ice cream sundae for dinner, I don't care, whatever, all right? This is how we do. And we stay in this hotel that was less than awesome, all right? And there we are. I said, you can watch whatever you want to on TV within reason. And so we found a When Animals Attack Marathon. Have you seen these things? So who's rooting for the animals? Me, always rooting for the animals. So we're about on our third one, and there's this lady with a, a, a little honey thing. They're selling honey, and there's a bear. And JP, immediately when he comes on, he goes, Dad, don't they know if they're on this show, they shouldn't try to pet the animal? I'm like, that's not how it works, buddy, but I see what you're saying. <laughs> sure enough, what happens? You're three seconds into them trying to film this commercial, and the bear eats the lady's face, just eats her face. And then the trainer, they always put it on the trainer. He's like, I don't know what happened. I can tell you what happened. That's what bears do, all right? They eat people's faces. That's what they do. They don't put out forest fires. They don't provide honey. That is not what they do. And you can try to tame them down as long as you want to. But eventually, it's going to grab you by the neck and take you somewhere and use you for lunch. That's just what they do. Sin kills steals and destroys. It cannot do it eternally if you were in Christ, but it can kill a relationship. It can destroy a dream. It can steal from you the abundant life. And yet a lot of times we think we can tame sin and you think the worst thing that's gonna happen is it's gonna smell up your carpet in your apartment. And little do you know that that thing is just waiting for you to go to sleep one day so we can eat your face off. Mortification is killing the sin that is trying to kill you. Now, the problem when I grew up is that I think, I think that when I grew up, the church took sin very, very seriously, but they got the order out of, out of order. That we spent all of our time, effort, and energy trying to mortify sin, and we took our eyes off Jesus, and we always had our eyes on the things we were doing and not doing. And that will lead us to utter exhaustion. What Paul wants us to know here is the order matters. The number one way to mortify sin is to vivify your relationship with Jesus. Um, Thomas Chalmers, this old preacher, he says it this way. He says, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The heart may be dispossessed of one object or of any, but it cannot be desolate of all. In other words, the number one way to kill sin in your life is to replace it with a love for Jesus. So the question is this, so what in your life is shrinking your heart for Jesus? What is it? It, it could be sin in your life or it could just be the stuff of your life that so easily entangles. So we don't turn our eyes on the sin. We turn our eyes towards Jesus. We look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, one of the th we got a bunch of young pastors here, at least younger than me, on our staff. And one of the things that we keep a close eye on is the pastors in our country that have fallen, that, that their ministry is no longer because there was some kind of moral failure. And I'll have a whole bunch of people say, how does that happen? I mean, this brother had a successful ministry, loves Jesus, believes the word of God. How does that happen? Let me tell you how it happens. He, nobody wakes up and goes, you know what I'm gonna do today? Today, I'm gonna ruin my family. Today, I'm gonna ruin my ministry. Today, I'm gonna ruin my reputation. That is not how it happens. What happens is they begin to go down a path, go down a path towards sin that wants to kill them somewhere down there. And on that path, the Holy Spirit comes to their heart and says, stop. 
And they go, I don't need you. That's how it happens. Everything else is just details. The same thing is true in every one of our lives. So what do we do? We better have a greater love for Jesus to replace any kind of love for this world that we have in our heart. That is our only chance, our only chance. You see, because sin management won't work. Sin management won't work. Like, if I told you, go home today and burn all your stuff, would you do it? No, but what if I told you in the burning of all your possessions, 10 times more would rise up from the ashes? You'd be the first one out. You'd be like, burn the stuff, baby. Get some of the neighbors. Throw theirs in there, okay? Because the prize is greater. The prize is greater. Jesus is greater than anything this world has to offer. And sin management just won't do it. Like when I get home today, I'll be starving. And, and if I saw a little beef jerky on the counter, would I eat the beef jerky? Sure, okay, who doesn't eat beef jerky? I know some of you don't, so just, if you're a vegan, okay, imagine you go home and there's a lettuce or whatever you do, okay. (laughs) For me, it's beef jerky. So if I were to get some beef jerky, would I eat it? Man, I'd eat through the wrapper to get to it. But if next to it was a perfectly cooked filet mignon, medium rare, the way Jesus taught us, all right, if he... If that was there, am I going for the beef jerky? Who needs beef jerky when you got a medium rare filet? You see, this is what a relationship with Jesus is. When my affections for the Lord have been stirred, who needs these things of the world? Like I I tell you all the time, I love Gretchen. If she were to come to me and say, baby, would you ever cheat on me? No way, no way. There's no way I would ever cheat on you. And if she would say, oh, thank you, that means so much. And I were to reply, because if I did, uh, where would I work? <laughs> and not only that, if I were to cheat on you, I don't think I could pull this off again. I mean, when I tricked you into marrying me, you were young and dumb, and then that's a covenant, so you're stuck, okay? And I don't think I can do better than you, so I think I'll stay with you. And not only that, I think we'd probably have to sell the house. You know how much it would cost me? I mean, that would be financially, it would be, it would be terrible. And what about our kids? I mean, that'd be awful, right? Now, are all those things true? They are. But those secondary motivations will not sustain a relationship. I don't stay faithful to my wife for those things. I stay faithful to my wife because I love her. I love her. And it's why we continue to cultivate this relationship. And so the cultivation of your relationship with Jesus is the primary way to kill the sin in your life. It's killing you. You ever go to the grocery store hungry? You make some of the worst decisions of your life, don't you? You're like, Captain Crunch, (laughs) I haven't had this in years. Get a big box and some Band-Aids. This is going to be amazing. No. (laughs) So the ingredients are the gospel. You begin with the end in mind. The end is that we become one with Jesus. There's vivification. What are you doing to stir your affections for Christ? There's mortification. Are you killing the sin that is trying to kill you? The fifth one, confession, confession. Because boy, it is easy to preach, it is hard to live, is it not? That I wanna turn my eyes towards Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and then the things of this earth grow strangely dim, except sometimes they ain't that dim. And anybody just wanna admit with me that the Christian life is hard? How about this? It's not hard, it's impossible. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. And so what confession is, is confession is saying, 
Jesus, we need help. We don't just need help that one time when we became a Christian, but continuously we need your help. This is why he says in verse 7, in these you too once walked and when you were living in them. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Confession means it's okay to not be okay. Confession is saying, I am not a mistake or in need of a life coach. I am a sinner in need of a savior. Confession sometimes is, praise God, I know I'm fighting from victory, but right now it just doesn't feel like it. Confession is, man, temptation still is tempting. Confession is, by the grace of God, I've made it three months in my sobriety, and I still need that same grace that got me here to take me through. You see, this will not be the kind of church where you have to fake it. You know why? Because the fake you was doing just fine. But a real God sent his real son to die on a real cross for the real you. So don't give me any of this. I'm fine. You ain't fine. I've seen your Facebook. You're jacked. So don't be rolling up here in church. How you doing? Just blessed and highly favored. Unless you're blessed and we're all highly favored because Jesus died on the cross for us. But you don't have to fake it. Confession is just a proclamation that the cross has outed us all. But confession is not enough. I think we have a whole lot of authentic churches with not a lot of repentance. Get together in disciple group and be like, hey, you know what? This is a place where I don't have to pretend. Jesus doesn't love the future version of me. He loves me. Okay, how's everybody doing? Oh, we're just really struggling. Oh, yeah? Yep, looked at porn again. Okay, anybody else? Oh, everybody. Okay, well, let's just pray. No! Confession, confession is always paired with repentance in the scriptures. That we confess and repent. Confession is the admittance that I need the cross. Repentance is turning our, turning our face towards it. Now, when I hear repent, you know, there's some church words that kind of throw you off. When I hear repent, my mind immediately goes to the guy with the bullhorn, like at the, at the Jag game, screaming at me on the way in, repent or die, you sinner. And I'm like, I have, bro. I just came from church. I'm really into this. We're the same team, but he doesn't believe me. <laughs> Don't think about repent that way. Think about repent as to change direction. Or a, a great way to think about repentance is this. Repentance is changing your strategy for life. Repentance is... My strategy ain't working too good. So I'm going to adopt God's strategy for my life. To put him before all things. This is why Paul says in the second half, 9b. He says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Martin Luther, the guy that kicked off the Protestant Reformation by nailing the 95 theses to the church door. The number one was this. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Confession and repentance is something that the Christians should be doing on a daily basis, a daily basis, a daily basis. Why? Because preaching it's easy. Living it ain't easy. In fact, it's impossible. So Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow after me. This is daily confession and repentance. And then the seventh ingredient is this. Again, the first one is the gospel. The second, begin with the end in mind, that we'll be unified in Christ. The third one, vivification. Fourth one, mortification. The fifth one, confession. Sixth one, repentance. Seven, repeat daily. Repeat daily. That, that the life of the Christian is marked by a grace Filled perseverance. 
a grace-filled perseverance. And that we live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, here's what this means. That doesn't mean that you live perfectly, but because of what Christ did for you, it changes everything about the way we live. Um, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I would highly recommend it. In that book, he says this. He says, the gospel of Jesus is the only place where the verdict comes before the performance. The gospel of Jesus is the only place in the world, in any religion, in anything this world has to offer, where the verdict comes before the performance. Every other religion, every other worldview is a performance comes first, then somebody or some God or some higher power gives you the verdict and says, did you do good or not? But in Christ, it's the only place where we stand in the courtroom with a whole lot of life left to live, and the judge looks at us, and the gavel comes down and says, innocent. And yet you know you're guilty. How am I innocent? Because I'm judging my son on your life. Not only am I declaring you innocent, and you don't have to pay for your crimes, but I'm going to adopt you, bring you to my house, and everything I have is yours. Now, live the rest of your life. The verdict comes before the performance. When I hear that, I think of the movie Saving Private Ryan. Have you seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? If you have not, punch yourself in the face, okay, because something's wrong with you. You probably want to see some dumb movie about vampires or something instead of real movies, okay? So go see it. That's your homework. Now, (laughs) I shouldn't say that, whatever. (laughs) Confessing. All right, so... There's, a, there's an image in there, and a lot of times people miss the gospel imagery because of the exact language, not bad words, but the language that's used, okay? Um, <clears throat> in the movie, Private Ryan is saved. Why? Because some general just decided for a set of reasons. He's just chosen. It's not by anything that Ryan has done. And so he sends Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, to go and save Private Ryan. And to- Spoiler alert, but towards the end of the movie, um, Captain Miller is getting all shot up. They've made it over this bridge. They've made it into safety, basically. And Captain Miller, Tom Hanks' character, he's all shot up. He's leaning against this Jeep. Private Ryan is trying to, trying to get him there, but he realizes he's not going to make it. And then Captain Miller looks at him and says this. He says, earn it. Earn it. And what he is saying is, do not waste my life because I have laid down my life to save you. So do not waste my life by wasting your life with what has been purchased for you. Earn it. Now, what he's not saying is, if you live a good life, then I will save you. He's already saved. He's already been chosen. The debt has been paid. He has been rescued. Then it goes to the end of the movie. The end of the movie, Private Ryan, he's a grandpa now. He's a grandpa. He's back in Normandy. He's visiting the gravesite of Captain Miller that saved his life. And in the, in the background of the movie, there's his kids and his grandkids. And he finds Captain Miller's tombstone or the little cross, and he kneels down in front of it. Man, you want to see a grown man lose it? You, you watch some Private Ryan with him. And the reason is because what's going on in every man when he watches this is it's jacking around with the fundamental question deep in his soul. Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? And the answer in the gospel is without Christ, uh uh-uh. But in Christ, you could do everything he has called you to do. And with tears, Private Ryan, who's a grandpa at this point, with tears just streaming, he looks at his wife and he just says this, just tears, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I'm a good man. 
Because what he is saying is this. What he is saying is, I remember back there on the other side of that bridge when this man laid down his life to purchase my life for me. And have I wasted that or have I lived in such a way to honor what that man did for me? And they hug and kiss and she says, you are a good man. See, that's what sanctification is. Not, I live my life in such a way so that he would pick me, but because this man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, laid down his life for me, that that salvation should sanctify us and it should cause us to walk in a way that honors, in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how the gospel not only saves us, but matures us. Here's the point. Is if we're serious about being a Christian, or if we're a Christian at all, that we must kill the sin that is killing us by first loving the God that first loved us. And how do we do that? It's through the gospel. It's by beginning with the end in mind. It's by doing the things that stir our affections for Jesus. It's by killing the sin that is killing us, that wants to kill us. It's by confessing that on a daily basis, we still need his help. It's not just confessing that it's repenting. It's daily turning ourselves back towards the cross and then it's doing it over and over and over until he comes back to get us. And so what we're going to do today at all of our campuses is we're gonna start today. We're, gonna, we're not gonna be merely hearers of the word and be like, oh, that's a good sermon. What you gonna do about it? Nothing. What a waste of time. And so we're gonna start today. And the way we're gonna start is with confession and repentance with confession and repentance. And so, in just a minute, I'm gonna read some verses as to where this comes from, and then I'm gonna pray in just a few minutes, and when I pray, all of our anointers here, Bay Meadows, Mandarin, the sanctuary, the anointers are gonna move into place, uh, and then when I say amen, we're gonna give you an opportunity to come forward and to confess and to repent. And here's why, because the book of James says this. James chapter five, is anyone among you suffering? In other words, anybody want to be honest enough and say, hey, the Christian life's not just hard, it's impossible. And I have taken my eyes off Jesus and I've put my eyes on this thing. Anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Anyone among you cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? And this could be emotionally sick, spiritually sick, physically sick. And honestly, the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. I think I'd rather have a sick body than a sick heart. Some of you have hope deferred physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, whatever it is. And you feel like you almost feel hopeless. And James says, okay, if that's you, here's what you should do. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, see here, the verdict comes first. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So how's your walk with Jesus? Are there things in your life that are shrinking your heart towards the Lord? Well, let's confess. Let's confess and let's repent and let's pray and let's anoint so that we will be, it doesn't say cured, it says heal, because by his stripes we are healed. And so once again, at every location, as I pray, anointers, you are gonna move during the prayer. And then when I say amen, the campus pastors will give instructions there and I will give instructions, instructions here as exactly what you are to do. Would you please pray with me? 
our good and gracious Heavenly Father. God, I thank you that you first loved us, that you are first, you went first, you love first. And what we are to do as followers is to respond to you. God, would you remind us once again of the gospel? God, may we begin with the end with you in mind. Lord, may we be disciplined enough to continuously participate in the activities and the environments that stir our affections for you, that grow us in you. And God, in that, as we turn our eyes and hearts towards you, God, by the power of the blood of Jesus, would you give us victory over the sin that is trying to kill us? God, may we be open and honest enough about the reality of the cross that it's hard and it's worse than hard. It's impossible on our own. And God, help us to repent. Help us to turn towards the cross. Help us to rethink our strategy for life because your way is just better. And then God, this is not a one-time event that the life of the Christian is at a daily confessing and repenting. And we thank you that you have gone first. God, we thank you that in you we fight from victory and not for victory. And so, God, I praise you in advance for the healing that will take place in your church because the debt was paid once and for all at the cross, that it is finished. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.